Hey, 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 it's Tammy, and you're listening to Popular Education Radio. Yay, so fun. Um, I'm, <laughs> I don't mean to sound sarcastic or something. I'm just a little bit still under the weather, which is also why this episode is coming to you in a tad bit of a delay. Um, just getting over a cold or the flu or strep throat. I'm not quite sure what it was, but it was unpleasant. That's all I know. Um, but here it is, my interview with Mortal Technique. Uh, for those of you who might not know, just been living under a rock or something, uh, Immortal Technique is a revolutionary hip-hop artist, um, just so many great things. Uh, he started off, uh, he's from New York, originally he's actually he's, uh, from Peru, then he moved to New York where he was basically became the king of the underground hip-hop scene, um, and you know what, you're going to hear all about it coming up now. Um, so yeah, without further ado, I really appreciate you, uh, tuning in as you always do, you know, you make it, you are why I do this. Um, if you have any question, common concerns, hit me up on the Instagram popular education radio or on the Gmail popular education radio at gmail.com. Um, yeah, I had a, a really interesting time with this interview. Um, and this is part of the popular education through music in November that I'm doing. Uh, so the rest of the month is going to be interviews with musicians who have, not to undersell it, but have completely changed my life, uh, of course, for the better. Uh, so last week there was Jeffrey Lewis. It was uh, Anti-Folk with Jeffrey Lewis. And today is going to be Revolution, or I guess Revolutionary with Immortal Technique. So again, thank you so much for tuning in. Without further ado, here I am. For people who haven't listened to your music, can you describe it in a couple of words? I would say that lyrics still matter. Unfortunately, lyricism has been replaced with fanfare, with manufactured celebrity, with the idea that people are independent when that's really just a marketing strategy and they're owned by a major label. But I've been independent since I started putting out records in 2001. I've toured every continent, and we do concept-based, but also very lyrical music. And I, I don't mean lyrics gratuitously, just to rhyme big words, but definitely we care about wordplay, double entendres, similes, metaphors. It is poetry in its natural form. And I think that that's the beauty of hip-hop. It came from a slum. It came from people who had absolutely nothing, Miss. It came from people who had water and cornflakes for breakfast, right? And they decided that they would take this beautiful art form of poetry and create a stronger voice for themselves in the community. But just to add a historical aspect to it, the record that I'm preparing now to release is called The Middle Passage. And something that's not really known is that during The Middle Passage, which is the horrible transfer of millions of people from Africa to the United States and other places on this hemisphere into bondage as also the unwritten and very, very underreported fact that thousands of musical instruments of African people were destroyed purposefully by European slave traders and other people who sought to decimate the culture as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm at the point in my research where it's not like I'm, I think that these rhythms and these songs and these ideas are coming from nowhere. They're an attempt for people to reclaim the legacy of what was lost. And therefore, I feel like it's just a natural progression of what we do. 
Now, just going a little bit into your background, you moved to the States from Peru, is that right? Yes. And how old were you when you moved here, or to uh, Harlem? I was about three years old. And did you always gravitate towards hip-hop, or was it because, I mean, Harlem is the 80s, it was kind of like the inception of hip-hop, really. Yeah, for me, I guess it came from two two different ways. Coming to, to just be immersed in the culture is one thing, but also my mother raised me to understand that, you know, her father was... And I think it's sad because in Latin America, there's definitely a lot, a lot of racism. And uh, being a person that was born without that cancer because of my uh, cultural infusion into Harlem is one thing. Mm. But also my, my mom's father is, <laughs> I don't even know how to say this because it's so funny. When you say the word black in Latin America, it means something different because people in Latin America often strive to not be black. But my grandfather was proudly by saying, yeah, I'm Afro-Peruvian, this is who I am. He was one of the first people to, en- to, to integrate the engineering school at that time. So he was a very smart man. And my mom always grew up with people kind of looking down on her father when they met him for the first time because they saw the color of his skin. But then when they spoke to him and they saw how eloquent he was and what a genius he was, so I naturally gravitated to the people that gravitated to me. Um, so it was never a question of me trying to fit in or, or, or being from another place. It was like, it was like finding a, a, a perfect spot for you to be in. And I think obviously there's growing pains when you move to any new place. But, you know, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a spot in which there were a lot of people who were not necessarily, um, who, who were immigrants, but not necessarily, quote unquote, Latino or indigenous immigrants. Mm. So there were African immigrants there too. So my mom didn't speak um, English, but she spoke Spanish and French. Mm. And so I grew up speaking Spanish and French before I ever spoke English. And therefore, I was always friends with the other African immigrants from West Africa who spoke French. You know, I would communicate with them in French and then in English when I was learning it with other people, and we kind of learned English at the same time. So it was definitely a process for me, and it was it was interesting to be immersed into a culture like that. But also, you know, hip-hop back then, Miss, wasn't the kind of gratuitous likes that we get now. It was totally a meritocracy in the sense that, you know, if you were just a talented person in the 80s, they would let you enter the cipher. You know what I mean? Like when I was a little kid watching like a fly on the wall, like anybody could get in the cipher. Girl, boy, light-skinned, dark, white, Asian. But you just had to be nice. You had to be able to hold your own because the moment you stepped in, people wanted to battle you. Mm. People wanted to come at you. People wanted to test your mettle. And I think that's not something that a lot of artists experience. As a matter of fact, the most famous artists that will ever be on big radio, they have all the questions pre-approved. I didn't ask you to not to ask me anything or what you can't bring up or, you know what I mean? They're handled with kitty gloves. They don't ever have to really answer for what they say. They don't ever have to really be accountable for any of the nonsense that they come up with. So I think that that's the difference. Back in the day, it was a much more interpersonal art. Whatever you said, you had to back up. You couldn't hide behind a big bodyguard and publicist and, and people, oh, don't ask him this, or he's sensitive about that. Oh, he's such a big, tough guy, but he's sensitive about this. Okay, I get it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Definitely even on, on the side of radio, sometimes I get that. But going back to the ciphers that you're saying, what, what was it like going from ciphers and battling you know, in the underground community to being able to do things like, you know, uh, help fund a school like you did in Afghanistan and just like being able to actually give back to the community? What, what was that like, that change? 
Well, I mean, I, I think it came from a place of it came from a place of struggle because I had seen, um, and I, I was always trying to be in tune with the world. So for me, I realized at a young age that these countries that people would refer to as you know these poor third world places, they had an infinite amount, almost seemingly infinite amount of resources that other people sought to exploit. And ever since they've been exploited, like take a place like Afghanistan. Sure, there's no gigantic oil fields, but the mountains are rich with tungsten, with nickel, with all kinds of metals that make the operation of your phones and your computers possible. Mm. So please don't refer to it as a place that's just some barren wasteland. You know, if, if, if we didn't need something from there, we wouldn't be there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, that that's something that I recognize very early. And as far as Afghanistan, the, the reason that the entire mission happened is because I was doing a festival called Rock the Bells at a place in the Bay Area called the Glen Helen Pavilion, I believe. And it was a huge stadium, and there was tens of thousands of people there. And I was simply approached by a group of activists. Most of them were women and two dudes, and they literally stopped me. And unlike other people who stopped me for stuff, they handed me a packet with an entire proposal. Mm. And I thought to myself, well, this is an interesting proposal, but the only thing wrong is that it's asking just to collect money, and that's what everyone else is doing. So I felt like revolutionary has to get personally involved. And I said to myself, okay, if this takes place, I'll donate money first to it so people don't think it's a scam. We'll make the funding totally transparent on the site or the the newsletters that we send out to people from the site. And then what we would do is I would book the ticket myself and then document the journey to let people know that this is exactly what happened. This is what we had to do. So when we went there, we acquired a house, a very large house for the kids. We had to clean out the house totally because there's glass and like broken structure inside the house that had to be manually fixed. There was no kitchen, so we had to buy kitchen appliances and then carry them in. There were no beds, no mattresses. All these things had to be assembled. There was had to be a food budget. So it, was, it definitely was something that I had no experience in doing. But I think the other reason that I did it, Miss, was to show people, hey, man, if I can be successful doing this in a place where, you know, I, I'm not from, where I don't understand the language then what is your excuse to the people out there for not being able to do something where you are, right? And I get it. You know, there are some resources involved, and I understand that. But the want and the determination didn't come from me being a a billionaire, which I'm not. It came from crowdfunding with regular, average, ordinary people that said, hey, man, we'll give $20, we'll give $10. We did, like, maybe three big fundraiser shows where – we raised a total of about $85,000, something, something, I don't have the numbers exactly, but it's something like that. And these was to acquire the house, to make sure the kids were fed for two years, to hire a teacher. And also, you know, I had the goodwill of going to places in Afghanistan and seeing other NGOs and seeing what they were doing right and doing wrong and what we wanted to improve on and what we could logistically take care of ourselves. And so, you know, when I went to Afghanistan, it was strange because at first the people were obviously skeptical of you because they're going to be skeptical Mm. if you just come into their country in the same sense that people can be either angry at uh, at Republicans or Democrats in this country. Mm. Um, I know people, for example, that despise Trump or that despised Obama 
but they would have never been okay with uh, China invading our country with millions of troops in order to, quote-unquote, free us. So this is exactly how the Afghans felt, because they're just regular people like us who just don't have their political ideas and their cultural struggles really put into a humane form. Mm. And the nuances of that kind of etched out for people to look at in the same way that white Americans do in this country, you know, wherein they shoot up someplace and it's like, oh, well, let's find out what's wrong with him, as opposed to a terrorist who happens to be brown and people mm-hmm. would just say, oh, well, he's automatically an evil individual. There's no nuance there. So I wanted to understand the nuance of the Afghan people, and I, I very much did so. And I think part of the fact that I went there with no corporate sponsorship and no military funding or no military escort, nothing. I, literally, I didn't even go to the embassy. I literally just went in there and was like, this is why I'm here. This is who I'm with. We networked in the Bay with some very, very influential people and imams that gave us a letter of recommendation for the people that were out there that said, listen, these people are not there to create like some weirdo Christian conversion school. This isn't about Americanizing people. No, we literally just did this to benefit the individuals that were affected most by this war, which were the children. A few trolls may have laughed and said, oh, this is a drop in the bucket. And I said, hey, man, this is an inspiration for other people to be able to do the same thing. Because like I said, if I can be successful there, what's your excuse for just hiding behind a block profile and doing nothing? Nothing. And are you looking into maybe doing more work like that at, at other places or with more organizations? Sure. I think after this next record is complete, which is probably going to happen in the next couple of months, definitely I only have about three and a half weeks left on the tour. So I, I think after this, this run is done, I would definitely explore that option. And there's a lot of places, I think, out there that need help. And, you know, a lot of this couldn't have been done by myself. And none of this could have been done by myself. It was because I partnered with uh, Omade International, O-M-E-I-D dot org, and I made sure that, you know, the people that I worked with were viable and good people and that they had the best interests of the children at heart. It was just something that I really, 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 really felt was a calling. So, yeah, absolutely, I, I would do it again. in white powder like those running away from the twin towers gunshots rocked the earth like a media shower bowling for columbine fear giving the media power innocence devoured like a chicken spot snack box government cocaine cooked in the ghetto crack rock corrupt cops false testimony at your arraignment check the check constant struggle to make the payments working your whole life wondering where the day went the subway stays packed like a multicultural slave ship it's rush hour 2 30 to 8 non-stopping and people coming home after corporate share cropping and flossing mothers are trying to feed children but gentrification is kicking them out of they building a generation of babies born without health care families homeless thrown the f- off the welfare <laughs> The 
the killing fields uptown. We live in distress and hang the flag upside down. The sound of conservative politicians on television. People in the hood are blind, so they tell us to listen. They vote for us to go to war instantly. But none of their kids serve in the infantry. The odds are stacked against us like a casino. Think about it, most of the army is black and Latino. And if you can't acknowledge the reality of my words, you just another stupid mother out on the curb trying to escape from the ghetto with your ignorant ways but you can't read history at an illiterate stage and you can't raise a family on minimum wage why the you think most of us are locked in a cage i give truth because they pride is indigent you better off rich and guilty than poor and innocent but i'm sick of feeling impotent watching the world burn in the era of apocalypse waiting my turn i'm a harlem that's concerned with the future And if you're in my way It'd be an honor to shoot ya Uproot ya with the evil that grows in my people Making them deceitful Cannibalistic and lethal But I see through the mentality implanted in us And I educate my fam about who we should trust <laughs> I guess, obviously, just from your life and where you've been and all, your essence has been politicized wherever you go, obviously. But was there a life event or a chain of events that caused you to become more, I guess, politically active to the point of being an activist? Well, I think there's a difference between being an activist and a revolutionary. And I'm not trying to denigrate someone who calls himself an activist. But I think it's a, it's a philosophically fundamental difference. And I think your audience is probably cerebral enough to understand this. A revolutionary doesn't believe in just changing the system. A revolutionary believes that the system was never designed for them. You see, Moses was a revolutionary man. He, he never believed that, uh, that Pharaoh and his great graces on top of the pyramid looking down upon all those Hebrew slaves thought to himself, hey, look at this wonderful, fair society, this meritocracy that I've built. You know, one day, uh, one of these little Hebrew slaves can grow up to be Pharaoh too. You know, that was something that was never said, it was never conceptualized. In the same way the Founding Fathers, some of them may have been enlightened individuals, but we over-glorify a guy like George Washington. He's like Trump without the comb-over. You know, he owned <laughs> slaves, he was a brash man, he killed people in war. You know, I've gotten into lots of arguments with people about this, because I go down to Miami all the time, and I people are like, oh my God, the Che Guevara shirt. And I said, you know, the difference of Che Guevara and George Washington is that George Washington actually owned slaves, and Che Guevara just said a bunch of racist shit when he was frustrated in Africa. They both killed prisoners of war. If you want to have an honest conversation about the difference between people. And then imagine if there was social media back in the day and we had to actually hear more quotes of Thomas Jefferson's blatant racism and the way that he raped his female slaves. And also to signify that these people literally were under the delusion that they replaced a quote-unquote savage indigenous society with something that was enlightened when really they installed legalized pedophilia and rape with the slave trade was, ma'am. 
without that understanding and without that vision, people lose something about the cause in which we're fighting. That's where you have that small niche and that small bacteria infestation that becomes neoliberalism, the idea of respectability politics when people are dying. You know, I'm from New York City, and recently, if uh, your viewers go on YouTube and they'll watch the little kid have guns, a dozen guns from NYPD drawn on him, and you wonder, what did he do? Did he murder someone? And you realize it's because he hopped a turnstile. You know, a few stops away from that stop where they did this, Miss. There, there are people stealing money, millions, on Wall Street. And then you got this kid who jumped a turnstile for $2.75, and it's all glocks to his head, and it's absurd. And then that's why, if you watch the news, you'll see thousands of people jump the turnstile and protest. Mm-hmm. That's where we start being revolution. That's when we start realizing, hey, this system was never built for us. You know, when they say things that you know, conservatism draws, oh, well, you know, this system wasn't designed for you in the first place. As racist as that may be, there's also something about it that can be true in the sense you're right. It wasn't designed for us. So you being right about something doesn't mean that you're a good person or that you're morally correct. In the sense, when you hear the game show host that we have now as a president talk, he's like a broken clock. You know, he's right twice a day. But I tell people, you'd be a fool to set your watch to a broken clock. So you can make a statement that's maybe logically or technically correct, but in the nuance or in the context in which it's posted, it still reinforces a racist ideology that is based off total fallacy. So I think that, you know, for me, it's not just a question of of being uh, an activist. It's also the, the foundational philosophy of being a revolutionary. And that comes from just living in New York City and seeing the disparity. Because people think New York City is such a diverse place. And while it is diverse, it's also an extremely segregated place. And people forget that. They think, oh, man, you know, the beacon of multiculturalism. Yeah, where every neighborhood had its own neighborhood in the 80s and 90s. And if you weren't of this particular demographic, you might get chased out of there with bats and sticks like Yusuf Hawkins. So I think that there's something to be said about acknowledging that. Now, I think that this comes in stages, so I'm not angry at a person who calls themselves an activist or or people who have doubts about it, because they obviously take the wrong characterization of it. They think that people who are, quote-unquote, revolutionary are coming from some position in the far left. And that's not actually true. They're just coming from a position in which they acknowledge that both political parties are basically parties of business that masquerade as a party of faith or a party of civil rights or, or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, business trumps everything else. No pun intended. <laughs> and I know that you've probably heard of all the the issues that we've had to face uh, this summer with all the fascists and neo-Nazis that are coming to town. Do you have just a couple of words for the revolutionaries and activists and just anti-fascist fighters that have been really showing up and and trying to kick all the different fascist groups and whatever out of here. You got any words for them? Any any advice? Well, I, I would remind them that the, the, the ideology that they're facing is not just a political ideology. It's a religious ideology. Mm. And now the right wing has decided to form itself into sort of a... a, a almost like a quasi-theocracy in the sense that now they've associated a, a person who was barely elected as a leader as some kind of golden calf that's worshipped. But it's interesting because my father's friend, who was a rabbi, said something so poignant to me. He said, don't ever forget that Moses 
delivered the Hebrew people out of bondage. He, he made the sky rain fire. He asked God to rain down frogs, to bring plagues in Egypt. When he was followed, he created a pillar of fire in the Torah, he said. And the Egyptians were blocked, and the Hebrews could pass safely. When that obstacle was then rescinded, he parted the oceans in the Torah, and they walked through. And still, after doing all this, the people chose a golden calf over him and over the Word of God. So if that can happen to people who've seen the miracle, imagine people who just believe in a story or believe in a European interpretation of Christ. And and unfortunately, I think what they have to understand, too, is that the way history has been presented to them is also a fallacy, like that that the, the, the neoliberal fallacies that we've been taught are just as dangerous as the conservative ones. For example, here's one that we love to hear. We're a nation of immigrants. Well, you know what? That's a liberal fallacy, man, because we're not. Immigrants, in terms of people who were brought to this country forcibly, that negates their experience. Those African people aren't immigrants. They were tortured and they were free people. No one stole slaves from Africa. They took free human beings, shepherds, fishermen, teachers, and then put them through this horrific process of dehumanization until they reached a point of chattel slavery, which is what they replaced an indigenous society with. And I think with leaving that out, you know, you do a disservice to those people also going forward. Uh, Ellis Island was opened in 1892, I believe. So if we look at this, people that came before that technically came without any papers, so you're all undocumented. But if you came after 1892, you came here as an immigrant. The only difference is that you didn't just apply for American citizenship. You also applied for whiteness in the early 1900s, because at that particular point, Irish, Italian, uh, Armenian, Greek people, they weren't considered white. They were considered like swarthy, quasi-Eurasian people, and they were depicted really badly. And for people who are interested in, in classical cinema, they can see this in, for example, The Godfather 2, where he says to him, listen, I don't like your kind. You come to this country with your oily hair and swarthy skin and pass yourselves off as real Americans. And when you think about Italian people and where they've lost their sense of identity as immigrants, that's what we have to prevent to happen to our resistance now for people to lose their identity as that. But going with the theme, if you didn't apply for whiteness, then you couldn't be part of a specific union, which is most unions. You couldn't join the police force. You couldn't join the, the fire department. Those both are political power in a sense that they create local political power. But also, you were redlined, districted to certain places. You couldn't get a loan from the bank. And this prevented you from creating the generational wealth that some people have been the beneficiaries of. But that's not even the oyster of it, ma'am. If you came here before 1892, like those people that came for the first 400 years before 1492 or 1892, you didn't come here as an immigrant. You didn't come here to assimilate into a culture that there was, was alive and present. You know what I mean? I'm not here to spread the, vicious, the biggest vicious lie, that there was no one living here, that this was just big, mm -hmm. empty space. No. You didn't come here to sweep the floors of teepees the way immigrants come here to, to work as a dishwasher or, or to feed people. You didn't come to wash the floors of campsites or to clean animal skins the way immigrants come here and work in hotel chains or do other jobs that other people aren't willing to do. No, you came here to steal women because you didn't think there were any laws preventing it. You came here to murder, rape, and kill and take gold from people. You came here not as a, a, as a settler. You came here as a thief and a colonizer. 
So I think that's what we need to understand about our liberal fallacy that says that we're a nation of immigrants. And there are plenty of conservative fallacies as well. But I think that acknowledging the way the right and left paradigm has been played against itself is important. And I would especially tell the people that look at it from an anti-fascist perspective that me as an indigenous person, I have to let them know uh, my revolution doesn't begin with Karl Marx. And that's no disrespect because I know a lot of people are smarter than that in the movement. They feel exactly the same way I do. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, I really appreciate some of the interesting things that are put into the book, but you have to recognize Karl Marx is a philosopher from the 19th century. And with all due respect, you know, I really didn't need a European guy from the 1800s to come to explain to us, you know, mm-hmm. people from the dark continents of Latin America and Africa, the complex concept of sharing. We knew what that was for thousands of years. So to play that off as if we need to take a European interpretation of that is something even further. And even to, 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 to work on that metaphor, if you look at some European societies, a lot of them, before they were forcibly Christianized, because half the Crusades were against Christians, you have to recognize that most of those European cultures, especially ones like the Celts, mm-hmm. um, which is we're talking about France and we're talking about England and parts of uh, a lot of parts of Ireland and, and Picts, people who were uh, mostly the northern part of England and Scotland. These people and the Viking her in many ways, even though we, there are certain issues we can get into that, as which the, they formed the first transcontinental uh, slave trade. But they had a different understanding of the land. They lived much more like... I won't say white Native Americans, but they had a much more indigenous-style philosophy than a European Christianized philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it was only after Europeans, a.k.a. white people, which was they, quote-unquote, become in this large glob of individuals, which robs them of their own national identity in that respect and their own cultural heritage. That is something that changed the demographic of Europeans forever, the forcible Christianization of these people. Because if you keep something in mind, and this is where I think right-wing ideology has its greatest Achilles heel, these people don't recognize this. As soon as they get done fighting the quote-unquote leftists, these people don't understand that Christianity doesn't share power. Half the Crusades were against Christians. You see all these religious denominations. If you really want the, 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 the church... And, and state mesh together, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get one church. You're going to get every other denomination stomped out. One God, one king, one church. And you'll live under that tyranny. Mm-hmm. And that is more dangerous than anything that I see from the left. Oh, the left is afraid to debate. Really? You think there's any debate with religious people? Can you convince your grandmother that Jesus isn't real? No. So stop playing with me. I mean, it's not. It, we're not looking at it through that through that like two-dimensional paradigm anymore. We have to take it to another degree, and we have to use the entirety of our human experience for the 200,000 years that we have access to, which unfortunately we only have six to 8,000 years of that history recorded. I wonder why, but that's a whole other conversation. But we have to use that entirety that we have available to us as a scale, rather than just the past 100 or 200 years. And also in doing so, acknowledge that time isn't linear. So therefore, just because we've gone farther into time doesn't mean that we've advanced more as a civilization. And anything, we may have just created an organized barbarity. You get up and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the 
immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business. And I have chosen you to preach this evangel. For all my free market healthcare robbing, stock stealing, retirement fund, good with your little credit card scam and jewelry stealing, crack selling, liquor store robbing. <laughs> Shout to the homies, Carnegie, OG, Willie Randolph Hearst, Baruch, Rockefeller, the real Rockefeller, my main, Leona, Bart, a little Louis XIII, Scott Rothstein, Jack Abramoff, hold your head, my yeah. watch out. Let's uh, get this money. I spent my day pepper in America overseas. Pension for the workers, please. Embezzlement, etiquette, private settlement. I'm better with Confederate rhetoric from my mansion in Connecticut. Foreclosure victims at the tenement. I twist words like a speech impediment. I hope you got good credit. If not, better get a new job with benefits. While I play golf with the to get cheddar with. New money buys brand new carrots. My old money bought your great grandparents. You got grills in your mouth, I ain't mad at you. I own every gold mine in South Africa. Thanks, baby, you made me a billion. Plus, I own a Building for each one of my children's children. That's smart coke in the whip, Miss USA. Yeah, what? The law is real jealous for suckers. I go to country club prison, you dumb. I am the one percent. Yeah, you know my CEO, corporate steez. Please overthrow governments overseas in a breeze. Politicians in my pockets for a few hundred G's. So if I'm ever in court, my Never freeze. I got a job and a house and a bank account. When I'm out, I doubt that's something you can say. And if not, then a fake death like Kenneth Lay. Make money every day the world burns on its access. Why y'all struggling to pay taxes? I'm getting my money the fastest. Memos and faxes, shredded up documents. Slush funds through the corrupt continents. But they don't want me indicted. Cause they don't want my dirty laundry aired when I fight it. Don't get my lawyers excited. Cause what good is a law if you can't rewrite it? I got CIA traders, dictators. So y'all whistleblowers and haters. Money from Al Qaeda in the bank. 9/11 widows go too late to capitalism's who I pray to. The state of the world, money talks. So what the f I need to say to your girl? I don't pay them. I pay them to leave. You know my CEO corporate steeds greed. I treat countries like the IMF down on your knees. Real gangsters run the world. What you believe? I cut down the forest, my young. Some trees, I get your family murdered for a couple of G's. Cause your working class money ain't me. You think rappers are rich cause of songs you heard? My labels make the money and have it wrapped the word. Yacht in the ocean, coasting with the sails out. Hey, America, thanks for the bailouts. I made off at the bank on Brogiano. Got away, got free like a Vaticano. Activists, activists get mad at me cause I'm a tax free charity. 80% to the staff and company and 20% to the homeless and hungry. The country gotta pay the Fed Reserve. Kick back to the banks, this haven't you learned? You protest cops and patrols on the street, but I bought city hall, so I own the police. Email, Facebook, and a tweet on a phone company, so I heard you speaking. My suggestion is no correction, no election, sex with no affection, no invention to benefit the world. A man will exist till I got the money in my hand. World Bank, interest rate, rate on a spot, but I'm a gangster, you gon' take my money like it or not. Your country in my pocket. You know my CEO makes Sonic Steve's cheese. Only little people pay all these taxes and fees. Since you were born, we controlled what you watch and you read. And pretty soon we're gonna own the 
what I want. I don't have to say please. I convince you that it's good for you. Take it and leave. You think presidents are the face of a nation? I put them all where they are. End of the conversation. <laughs> when I first heard your music, I felt so good just to know that someone can understand kind of how I feel and how I look at things. It was so refreshing to hear that. Then you know, I got introduced to other musicians that、um, are also kind of in the same genre as your own. But I want to know from your point of view, why do you think that your listeners enjoy your music? Like, what do you think about your music? Do listeners enjoy the most? I think it's the raw lyricism. Like people just love lyrics. They love metaphors. They love the punchlines and stuff like that. But more than that, I think my audience has grown with me. They've seen an angry young man that came out of jail who was on parole, putting out more battle raps. And Volume One didn't have a lot of hooks. To the point where they see a songwriter develop in Revolutionary Volume Two, then they see a person who is much more conscious about the fact that hip hop, even though it's a great culture, was still unfortunately plagued with sexism and homophobia. And to be able to confront those things in my person and also in the music, and now to create an album like The Middle Passage, where, for example, I mean, I grew up in Harlem, so. I didn't start using the N word to be cool with people. I was never like that. It was like literally, I went to the park one day and people were picking teams and they were like, "I got this, I got that." They pointed at me and they said, "I got that little Puerto Rican there." And I was like, "Well, first of all, I'm a Puerto Rican and I'm I'm not against." So I went home to my mom, whose father had experienced a brutal amount of racism、mm. growing up in Peru, and was like, "Mom, people called me a and she went." She went insane. She was like, "Oh, who the f called you that? I'm going down to the park with like a, a dough roller to crack someone in the head." And I was like, "Mom, it was of a black and Latino kids." And then we had this conversation. So I think the evolution of my music takes it to a point where, look, I'm I'm pushing forty now. You know what I mean? I'm not the angry twenty three year old kid that came out with his first record and. When I look at that, there has to be an evolution of me. So the, my fans know that I went to Afghanistan. The people who support me know that I used to teach in a prison a couple of years ago with my good friend Carmen Perez, who was、uh, a big part of the Women's March. So just people that that you could hear what they're sensationalized for in the mainstream, but sometimes it's harder. For people to look closely at that individual and say, "Hey, well, I see the work they're doing—not just、mm-hmm. the rally that one day or that one time on TV,、mm-hmm. or, or that one day where someone may have seen me battle or someone may have seen me perform—but you know what I mean? They—they've seen me progress over the years and say, 'Oh, wow, he really does teach in a prison for kids. He does this program where it says confronting trauma through writing as a mobile program.' So I've done it in London. I've done it in East Lake Juvenile Hall. In a But it's mostly youth detention facilities since I was incarcerated as a child, and also to hear the middle passage where we've completely eliminated the N word from anything that we're going to do. Like I, I always explain to people, yeah, sure, my friends are never going to stop calling me that in Harlem. I can't tell little kids not to call me that. They'd be like, oh, attack me when they see me in the street. So it's like, okay, how you doing? But going forward, to present myself as A more of a of, of a person who's matured into hip hop and isn't trying to fit into skinny jeans and、mm. you know take Molly in the club with you. That's just not my position in life no more. I've fallen in a hole. I spent wasted some time incarcerated. My job is to prevent you 
from making the stupid mistakes that I did. And I think people appreciate the growth in the music, which attracts young people because they're like, oh, this isn't a boring lecture. This is a dude really talking about how he used to cut faces like a pirate and run around like a maniac. But the story has an interesting twist to it. You know, here's a songwriter. Here's a dude that made himself independently wealthy. Here's a guy who doesn't rock old chains and drive around in a Rolls Royce because he invested in a farm in Peru and, you know what I mean, and has properties and, and decided that he would try to build generational wealth and not just that, but educate people how to do that as well. In other words, they appreciate the fact that I acknowledge that there's a hole that people live in and that they saw my graffiti written on the wall of that hole. And on that graffiti was instructions on how to get out. That's probably my favorite part of the interview is that phrase right there. So right now, Moto Technique is, has released a new album called The Middle Passage and currently is on the Middle Passage tour. Um, I asked Mortal Technique what listeners should be expecting as part of the tour, but also as part of the new album. This is what I had to say. I would tell people that they're definitely going to hear the classic records that everybody loves, mm -hmm. but I think we made a much bigger effort on this tour to perform a lot of songs that people are not used to hearing, and then we perform two or three full, but about seven tracks in total from the Middle Passage. So they get to hear stuff from the record that they wouldn't get to hear for at least another two months. So they get a preview of everything. And it's really like we've picked a lot of smaller venues to be in. Like we're not in the big like 1,500, 2,000 cat venues that we do if we roll out as a big support act or if we have a big support act here. It's just me and my brothers, um, Chino Excel and Poison Pen. You know, two mm -hmm. Chino Excel who's a staple of lyricism and one of the only people to survive that East Coast, West Coast beef. Mm. And also we have Poison Pen, who's basically the god, one of the godfathers of the battle rap scene in New York City. When he saw me coming out of that period of incarceration where I was still on parole and I was competing actively in battles, I actually demolished a few friends of his. And he was just forced to acknowledge that, you know, I had talent. And mm -hmm. that's just like, that's the culture of hip hop. Yeah, and mind that. you, I come from Harlem and he comes from Brooklyn, two neighborhoods that don't necessarily get along all the time. But, you know, for him to just be like, yo, man, you nice. Like, yo, I'm throwing a battle. Do you want to do this? And he was like, yo, yeah, yeah, I'm down. Like, I'm, I'll do it, man. Like, you put anybody in front of me, Penn, and I'll knock them down. And that's kind of the attitude I have. So he was a person who always believed in me when I was younger and coming up. And he, he literally invented pay-per-view battle rap and he you know was one of the pioneers of putting people um who won the battle on to perform afterwards so you could hear their actual talent and that really doesn't get talked about a lot and of course dj static is just you know a world famous dj he's actually holds a record for doing the most amount of european festivals in the 24-hour cycle so mm. you know he's a person that comes from the bronx he's an uh, his family immigrated from Ghana to be here, so he still represents that West African culture, but obviously grew up being an African kid surrounded by African Americans in the Bronx, mm. and so has the hip-hop culture in his soul because that's where he was born. So it's like born in the Bronx, just like hip-hop. So I, I, I look at it in that sense, that we're, we're definitely a very, very diverse crew of people who bring a lot to the table. So I would just tell people to expect new music, to expect the music that they don't always hear from me, 
and then the classic stories that they like to hear. So mm-hmm. we have a full package, and uh, you know, like I said, Chino has his own 30-minute set, Poison Pen that's hosting and also performing uh, music, and then we have myself, and I put on about an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and a half of a set, which is like a full set, rather than if they came to see me at a big festival like the one we just did at Red Rocks with Wu-Tang and Jedi Mind Tricks. Unfortunately, you know, when I'm the support act for Wu-Tang, I, I really can only get like 40 minutes, 45 minutes. So this is really like double the time that I would you know, in order to be able to do the full songs and give people 100%, uh, like even more, like 100 90% on stage. Yeah, I know we're all going to be looking forward to that. That's That sounds dope. Um, and I know I've taken up so much of your time and I, I really appreciate it. And I just have one last question. We can wrap it up. What was the first piece of art you ever created? Or it was, it, whether it's a poem or, or you know, physical art or installation, what was the first one? Oh, that's, that's hard. I, 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 <laughs> I think my mom's holding on to it. I wouldn't be able to tell you. Like, that probably made it before I even have a recognizable memory. <laughs> I was always, I always had a gift for artistic expression in some way, shape, or form. But I, I grew up with a lot of rigid discipline because my father was in the Peruvian military and basically got a scholarship to come to America to go to college here from there. Mm. And therefore, you know, I, I grew up with a very, very, like, discipline forced on me but my father's love was science so mm. i always had that like i was never boxed in by like religion or by theocratic uh, ideology it was more by saying okay you know what the the division of of religion and government is necessary for the growth of ideology or you know i i was introduced to these concepts at an extremely young age like i gotta tell you when i talk to the to the babies like my nieces and nephews, I, ne- I, I'm, I guess I'm in like my father in that sense. My father never Google gaga me. He never, oh, dude, hey, little baby, how you doing? He was always like, good morning, how are you doing? Today there's a chance of precipitation, so I suggest that you put your boots on. And also, if there happens to be uh, an accessory like an umbrella over there, you would probably want to take that with you. And that's how he talked to me. Mm-hmm. And imagine talking to a three- or four-year-old like that, so... It was just the way that I was raised. And I guess even through all of that, there was always science there. So I I would say that my first real creative experience was understanding how science worked and realizing that there was a fundamental matrix or, or a blueprint to the world that we live in now. I mean, even take something like video games. They're nothing but a a series of complex math equations that you complete every time you take an action within the game. Even if mm. you were interacting with an NPC or a live player, it's still a math equation. So I think for me, I was always attracted to science. So maybe some of the first art that I did is, you know, I used to collect stones. And I, I would, I, there was a, a grinder, a machine that sanded the stones down. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I was a little tiny kid, I guess I put gloves on at the lab where my dad was finishing his studies. And literally, I would just take the thing and I would just probably push it against the stones <laughs> so I could create a shape out of the stone. <laughs> Damn, I, I really appreciate that. That that really put a smile on my face. Um, thank you so much for your time. I, I can't, um, I, I really can't describe what it's like speaking with you, just have known your music for so long. It's, it's really a pleasure and an honor. Well, thank you very much. Big shout out to Portland. Thank you so much. Hey, hey, hey. How'd you enjoy that? I, I really enjoyed that. Even listening back to it, I really enjoyed that. 
Uh, that was my interview with the Mortal Technique revolutionary and hip-hop artist. My name is Tammy, and you're listening to Popular Education Radio. If you'd like to get in touch with me and say nice things, or mean things, I'd prefer nice things, or if you have any questions, uh, you can hit me up on Instagram, at Popular Education Radio, or on the Gmail, populareducationradio at gmail.com. Um, I really enjoyed this interview so much. This uh, interview with the Moral Technique, as with the last one with Jeffrey Lewis, and the next one, which is going to be a surprise, although I did mention it in the last uh, episode, uh, all those people that I've been inspired by for so long, right? They are all about it. You know, it's like, I don't know if everyone gets to do this or if it's just with this type of music, you know, anti-folk punk and, and hip hop, where the people that are creating this music are really about that life, you know? And, and it's really inspiring and really, I'm so happy that I have the ability to, you know, share these conversations with you. And again, thank you to all the artists who agreed to speak with me. Um, yeah, so that's going to wrap it up. Thank you all so much. I just want you to remember, popular education is a form of freedom. (laughs) 